welcome back to the study room podcast where we bring you just one topic of revision every day and today i hope you guys enjoyed our new intro music that brings a very uh, jazzy vibe uh, to the show uh today we're going to be jumping right in uh starting off with biopsychology uh, as our topic of revision today uh okay let's start off with the nervous system so the nervous system is the um is divided into the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. So the central nervous system is the spinal cord and the brain, and the peripheral nervous system is made up into the somatic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. Somatic um, taking care of the bodily actions, uh, such as muscular control, and the autonomic uh, nervous system taking care of the unconscious uh, bodily procedures. Uh, Within the autonomic uh, nervous system, we also have the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is our fight-or-flight response in which our digestion is halted, more blood is allowed to muscles, adrenaline is released, pupils dilate uh, so that we can see better, heart rate increases so we have more oxygen to our muscles. The parasympathetic nervous system is our rest and digest um, system. This is bringing all of our bodily functions back to normal after the fight or flight. Um, okay, uh, so let's outline the role of the central nervous system. Well, it's to control. Uh, it's, so it's the control of behavior and regulation of the body's physiological processes. The spinal cord relays information between the brain and the body, allows the brain to monitor functions. Uh, an example being breathing. And this is controlled by the brain's uh, by the brain's four main areas and functions. Uh, so the role of the autonomic nervous system uh, again is involuntary, uh, and it is what we already described. So we can uh, go uh, skip over that. Uh, and the the role of the nervous system. Well, this is a complex network of nerve uh, cells that carry messages to and from the brain and the spinal cord to parts of the body. Uh, okay, and I think that covers us for the nervous system. Uh, So what about the endocrine system? Well, the endocrine system is a network of glands throughout the body uh, that manufacture and secrete um, chemical messengers known as hormones. This uses blood vessels to to deliver these hormones and it's a non-targeted effect. It means that it affects everything in the bloodstream. Uh, Outline the role of the pituitary gland. Well, the pituitary gland secretes multiple hormones that regulate the endocrine activities of the adrenal cortex, uh, thyroid gland, uh, reproductive organs, and a hormone that stimulates melanin production. Uh, the pituitary gland is known as the master gland. What is the role of the adrenal gland? Well, this secretes hormones involved with mineral balance, uh, metabolic control, and resistance to stress. The adrenal medullae releases adrenaline and noradrenaline during the sympathetic activation. This is, again, that fight-or-flight response that we talked about. Uh, Okay. Um, Yeah, okay. So talking about, next up, neurons and synaptic transmission. Well, the function of a sensory neuron is to carry impulses from sensory receptors to the spinal cord and brain. Uh, and this is converts, converts information from sensory receptors uh, into nerve impulses. The role of a relay neuron, on the other hand, is to relay ner- nerve impulses from sensory to motor impulses. 
the function of the motor neuron is when stimulated, this releases neurotransmitters across the synapse to muscle receptors and triggering a response which leads to a muscle movement. Uh, okay, so if we want to look at uh, different differences between sensory relay and motor neurons, I would strongly suggest uh, either looking it up or looking at your textbooks, in which case it shows you all the differences between them. Uh, yep, the sensory neuron has like a little kind of spaghetti thing in the bottom, uh, and then you know, cell body in the middle. Relay neurons got uh, two little spaghetti things, and then uh, I believe the scientific term for these are dendrites. Yes, dendrites. Uh, and the motor neuron has one big dendrite uh, at the top, a cell body uh, in that kind of dendrite area, and then an axon at the bottom. Uh, okay, yes. So. Um, synaptic transmission. Let's 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 talk about this. So, what happens uh, during synaptic transmission? Well, I'm glad you asked, because an electrical impulse travels along the axon of the transmitting neuron until it reaches the presynaptic membrane. This stimulates the synaptic vesicles to re release the appropriate neurotransmitters. An example being uh, serotonin or dopamine. The chemicals diffuse across the synaptic cleft, uh, the gap, and bind with receptor molecules on the postsynaptic membrane. The receptor molecules on the second neuron only bind to a specific chemicals released from the first neuron. This stimulates the second neuron to transmit the electrical impulse, causing an action potential in the postsynaptic membrane. Whoa, that's cool. Um, yes, so after the neurotransmitter has been used, it diffuses back across uh, the synaptic cleft to be reabsorbed by the presynaptic membrane. As we saw in the psychopathology topic, the SSRIs inhibit this so that they stay in the synaptic cleft, still triggering those uh, neurotransmitters. So, what is the, so there's different types of uh, neurotransmitters. Uh, you can either have blondes or brunettes. Um, no, but there's ex excitatory or inhibitory. Uh, neurotransmitters. So increase the so excitatory excitatory neurotransmitters increase the likelihood of exciting of an excit yes that word of an excitatory signal uh, is sent to the postsynaptic uh, cell, which is then more likely to fire. So an example of this being noradrenaline. So it increases the likelihood of an excitatory signal to be uh, sent to the postsynaptic cell. Um, what is an inhibitory a neurotransmitter? Well, this decreases the likelihood of neuron firing. An example being um, GABA or serotonin, uh, as we both covered in uh, psychopathology. So, let's talk a bit more in depth about this whole uh, fight or flight response uh, shtick. So, explain what is meant by the fight or flight response. Well, bodily changes in reaction to an acute stress, which increases the body's uh, alertness and response to the stress. So let's let, let's talk about exactly what happens during the fight or flight response. A situation is perceived as stressful. The hypothalamus activates the um, sympathomedullary pathway. So the sympathomedullary pathway. This activates the synaptic branch of the autonomic nervous system. This then stimulates the adrenal medullae, secreting the hormone adrenaline and noradrenaline into the bloodstream, preparing the body for fight or flight, causing physical changes in the body. These include pupil dilation, 
increased heart rate, halts digestion, and increases breathing. This increased level of activity cannot be maintained, um, so the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system returns the body to a rest and digest uh, state. Adrenaline is, uh, so yeah, so the role of adrenaline in all this is secreted by the adrenal medullae, which activated by in the fight or flight response, increases the bodily's heart rates, providing more oxygen to um, more blood oxygen to the vital muscles, digestion stop to allow more blood flow uh, to organs that are needed, uh, pupils dilate to increase the amount of light that is absorbed, improving vision, breathing increases uh, to provide more oxygen to the bloodstream. Um, what is the role of the parasympathetic branch in the fight-or-flight nervous system? Well, its role is to return the body to a normal state, allowing digestion and slowing of, uh, of heart rate and decreasing the rate of breathing. An evaluation of the fight-or-flight response uh, is that it may not be generalizable because tend and befriend is a theory that suggests that women's reaction to stress is different to uh, men's. Yes. Uh, also, it does not tell the whole story because freezing precedes both fight or flight. We talked about this in psychopathology in phobias, in which people may freeze and faint uh, as if uh, kind of a, because of an evolutionary perspective, it makes them look uh, as if they're dead, to, you know, play dead uh, in a sense. Okay. Next up, we are going to be talking about localization of function. Uh, yeah, interesting stuff. So, specific functions have specific areas in the brain. This is uh, generally what is meant by the localization of function. The motor cortex is responsible for the generation of voluntary movements. Motor cortex is in one hemisphere and controls the opposite side of the body. Uh, so this crisscross pattern of uh, control. Uh, different parts of the motor cortex uh, exert control over different parts of the brain. Uh, okay, the somatosensory cortex uh, detects sensory events arising from different regions of the brain, processes sensory information such as, such as touch, pain, pleasure, which it then localizes to a specific bodily areas. So again, somatosensory, it, it senses where it is. Uh, outline the role of the visual center. Well, visual processing begins in the retina uh, and receives, receives visual information in both sides of the brain. Again, this crisscross pattern, uh, as we're going to talk more about in uh, the split brain research and lateralization. Outline the role of the auditory center. Well, the auditory center is when sound waves from the ear are converted into nerve impulses. Uh, this is basic decoding uh, in happens in the brain stem. Broca's area is an area critical for speech production. Uh, patients could understand language, but could not speak. Uh, in his split brain research by um, Broca. Uh, where next area is an area for speech understanding, but patients could not actually speak uh, in this. So, we talked a lot about uh, localization of function. And, um, yeah. Uh, okay, so let's just evaluate this quickly. Um, so communication, communication, communication between brain areas uh, may be more important than localization. Individual differences in language areas. Uh, gender is a, uh, a role in this. Bavelier et al. found this. Uh, language production not confined to Broca's area alone. Dronkers et al. Uh, found this out. Okay, 
so talking about letteralization and stuff, uh, let's talk about letteralization and stuff. Uh, yeah, more specifically, letteralization and split-brain research. So, hemispheric letteralization is the idea that each hemisphere has functional, um, specific um, stuff. Uh, it has a, you know, responsible for, for specific uh, functional um, processes. So, uh, research into hemispheric lateralization conducted on patients with a severed cor sorry, severed corpus callosums uh, is referred to as split brain research because they had the uh, part of the brain that connects both hemispheres uh, cut. This is due to treatment for epilepsy to um, restrict the amount uh, of electrical impulses or, or the, the extent uh, to which uh, the epilepsy um, actually affected the patients. So the findings of split-brain research, uh, as Sperry and Gazinga is the main research into this, found that patients with split, split hemispheres could identify verbally the images presented to the right visual field, but not the uh, images presented to the left visual field. Patients could draw the images uh, of both visual fields with both hands. So again, what they did in this research, they had um, split brain patients look um, at, at a central point while two images flashed on the, uh, on the screen, one occupying the left visual field, one occupying the right. And as we know, because of the uh, split and these, this crisscross signal that the right stuff uh, perceived in the right hem uh, hemisphere um, goes to the left uh, hemisphere and stuff in the left visual field goes to the right hemisphere. Um, yeah, so again, uh, kind of going more in depth, what we notice is that because Broca's area and the language um, kind of function is in the left hemisphere of the brain, um, people could not actually describe what they saw in the right side of the brain, uh, so, uh, you know, correlating to the left visual field, because that would go to the right and they can only describe stuff uh, using the left side of their brain. Okay, evaluations of this is that internalization changes, uh, sorry, lateralization changes with age. Um, yeah, Flarsky et al. found that language was increasingly, um, increasingly, I'm trying to read my handwriting and this is a real thing. Uh, thank God this is a podcast and you guys cannot read it. Uh, found that increasingly leftward lateralization with age in adolescence, yes, so the left side of the brain gets more developed with age until 25, when it decreases with each decade. Uh, interesting. Uh, so an evaluation of lateralization and split brain research is that Sperry and Gazinga's research may be unreliable. Participants did suffer epilepsy, so we, we can't really see the cause and effect relationship between what is due to the ep epilepsy that they had suffered and uh, because of the, the fact that the two hemispheres cannot um, talk to each other. Another interesting point, uh, and, and it's quite pertinent, uh, is that uh, they had different amounts of corpus callosum cut because of the different amounts of, or the different severities of epilepsy that each patient uh, had. So again, you know, not, everyone, not all the patients had the same amount of uh, communication between the uh, areas of their uh, brain. Uh, okay, um, yeah, okay, next up we're going to be talking about plasticity and functional recovery in the brain. 
what is brain plasticity and functional recovery? Well, it's the brain's ability to change and adapt as a result of experience. Um, so plasticity can occur as a result of life experience. As people gain uh, experience, nerve, n uh, nerve pathways frequently used develop stronger connections. Maguire et al. Uh, is an interesting study into this, which found that cab drivers, hippocampi, or hippocampuses, were actually more developed uh, or larger than those who hadn't, uh, who weren't cab drivers, um, because in London we have this thing called the knowledge, which is a test that uh, all cab drivers must take when they um, you know, want to pass a, a, a license to drive a taxi, in which they need to know all the streets in London and which ways to take and the most efficient uh, ways to go around. So again, de really developing that uh, part of the brain that deals with um, the uh, visual and spatial uh, arrangements and information. So yeah, that actually physically increased the amount of gray matter in the brain. Um, so plasticity can occur as a result of playing video games. Yes, it can. Uh, complex and different cognitive um, and motor uh, kind of tasks um, do take place when playing video games. Uh, Kuhn and Al found increase in gray matter in motor cortex and hippocampus and cerebellum within uh, people who did play uh, video games. So yes, um, plasticity occurs as a result of meditation. Yeah, gamma rays um, actually do uh, do increase because of meditation in uh, monks. They, they, they found that they had a, a, an increase in uh, gamma rays emitted from them. Um, because of their me uh, meditation. So again, if you guys feel like meditating and becoming radioactive at the same time, uh, please feel free to do so. Um, okay, define functional recovery in the brain. Moving functions from a damaged area to the brain to undamaged ones, that is what it is. Um, neural unmasking is the stimulating of dormant synapses in the brain, uh, opening connections in unactivated areas of the brain and developing new structures. So again, we have these dormant synapses, synapses that may not be used, which are actually opened up um, to take on new roles and new structures uh, to, um, uh, to, you know, uh, to, to, to go around uh, the, the same tasks as the damaged area. Uh, although this might be slower with an increase in uh, um, kind of tasks or experience with this, this can actually grow to a, a, a semi-full uh, recovery of it, just purely a different section of the brain takes over that uh, that area. So it's like, you know, instead of the shortcut, it goes a long way around. Uh, okay, and functional recovery because of stem cells uh, happens when unspecialized cells that have potential to give rise to different cell types with different functions, as what a stem cell is, and this including taking on characteristics of nerve cells. Uh, and this links injured site to an uninjured site. So it, it, it builds across uh, areas that are damaged and areas that are, that are not um, and can take on new function. You can also have uh, stem cell implants that actually help uh, with this. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there is evidence to support this from animal studies, Tajiri et al. There may be age differences that uh, apply to this, the capacity for neural reorganization is greater in children. Albert et al. found this. Educational attainment and functional recovery seven times higher in college-educated individuals. Uh, Schneider et al. Uh, having found this. 
So there's different ways of studying the brain. We've talked a lot about the brain, uh, but how do we really study these, uh, you know, these, these mental processes? Well, measures, uh, so fMRIs um, measure blood flow in the particular areas of the brain. Activated areas of the brain require more oxygen and hence more blood. Uh, yes, so we can talk about localization of the brain uh, in, the, in, in the same sense because we can actually see which parts of the brain uh, can occur with each task. EEGs, um, or the long name of the term, which I have not written down somewhere, are electrodes placed on the scalp which measure small electrical changes resulting from the brain cell activity. This, uh, since, so signals from electrodes are graphed over time and you have to identify the kind of like the spikes of uh, different um, um, kind of activity. Um, ERPs are small voltage changes in the brain triggered by specific events or stimuli. So again, these are uh, electrodes placed on the scalp, and then you have the participants or the patients uh, go through an exercise in which you say, oh, "Okay, they're using I don't know, like a, a motor task. Let's see which part of the brain uh, shows more um, kind of uh, you know higher." higher voltage. Um, yeah, so there are some evaluation points for this, um, but we will continue on and evaluate after that. Post-mortem examinations are a retroactive study to determine a change in brain um, that behavior was thought to originate from. Um, sorry, that's damage in the brain uh, that behavior originated from. So again, if you, if you have a, a man going to a psychologist or a woman going to a psychologist and, um, or any other gender going to a psychologist, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to go through the entire list if you, if you don't stop me. Uh, yes, if somebody um, goes or something goes to a psychologist and you know, the psychologist thinks that they might be damaged to a brain area after they die, they will do a post-mortem examination uh, to see if if there is actually d damage to that area. But again, uh, it can uh, have some limitations to it. Speaking of limitations, let's evaluate uh, the ways of studying the brain. Yes, good idea. Okay, strengths of fMRIs. Uh, fMRIs are non-invasive and non-harmful. That's good. Uh, they're more objective and reliable than verbal reports. Limitations of... Uh, fMRIs is that it's not a direct measure of neural activity. Yes, that is true. And it ignores communication between different regions. Hmm. Uh, EEGs, uh, strength of EEGs that measures brain activity in real time and is useful in clinical diagnosis. Uh, an example being epilepsy, in which you have high uh, voltage um, or, or brain activity because of electrical impulses. Uh, limitation of EEGs that cannot measure activity in deeper brain regions. It is, again, applied to the scalp, so you only really see an uh, external view of it, and it does not distinguish between activities originating in adjacent brain areas. Uh, yes. Um, ERPs, strength of them, is that they're useful for studying effects uh, of specific experimental manipulation. Again, cause-effect relationship. Uh, and they can measure in the absence, they can measure in the absence of a behavioral response. So again, if there's no change in behavior, but, but you can actually see that there might be a change in the uh, uh, voltage in the brain, uh, so different regions may be activated, which is um, an interesting thing. Limitation of ERPs requires many trials to gain meaningful data. 
uh, and generation ERPs is restricted to the neocortex. Um, yes. Okay. Strength support postmortem examinations that they allow for more detailed examination than scanning, um, and that they've played a central part in understanding origins of schizophrenia. A limitation is that there's many confounding variables, and another limitation: there's no opportunity for follow-up. Uh, yeah, that's a fair enough point. Uh, moving straight on, we're going to talk about circadian rhythms. Circadian rhythms, rhythms that last 24 hours. They, uh, the master circadian pacemaker is the SCN. The SCN is a rest uh, reset by daylight. Uh, Sleep-wake cycle is on a circadian cycle. Sleep and wakefulness also under homeostatic control. Uh, and yeah, so other examples of circadian rhythms are core body temperature, which are lowest at 4.30 a.m. and highest at 6 p.m. Um, yeah, so continuing on, uh, Michel Sifre was a cave diver. Uh, or caveman, or a person in a cave is what I'm trying to say. And he found that his um, his, his sleep-wake cycle were actually reset uh, differently when there was an absence of uh, light. So circadian rhythms keep us awake as long as there is daylight, uh, prompting us to sleep as it becomes dark. The homeostatic uh, system tends to make us sleepier as time goes on throughout the waking period, regardless of whether it's night or day. Uh, the usual kind of free-running internal circadian clock is around uh, 24 to 25 hours. Again, touching back on that uh, uh, case study of Sifre, uh, it is... Um, so, yeah, so he went cave diving and he had no external cues or guides to his rhythms. No daylight, no clocks, no radio. He just woke, ate, slept, and, you know, whenever he felt it appropriate to do so. Uh, and at one point, he spent six months in a cave in Texas, and his natural circadian rhythm settled down to just over 24 hours. Um, so, yeah, but there was some uh, uh, dramatic variations in his last underground stay, he was interested in the effects of aging on circadian rhythms. Uh, so he was about 60 years old when he did this. And he found that his body clock ticked more slowly compared to when he was young, and sometimes stretching his circadian rhythm out to 48 hours. Uh, okay, alternating rhythms. Um, alternating rhythms are uh, found in human sleep. Uh, follows a pattern of alternating uh, rapid eye movement and non-rapid eye movement sleep. And it's about um, four stages long, uh, and it repeats itself every 90 to 100 minutes throughout the night, with different stages having different durations. A uh, complete cycle consists of a progression through the four stages of NREM before entering the final stage of REM sleep. So stage one, uh, there's light sleep, uh, muscle activity slows down, occasionally muscle twitching. Breathing uh, is the second stage pattern, and heart rate slows. Slight decrease in body temperature. That's about 45 to 55% uh, sleep. Oh, sorry, 45 uh, yeah to 55% of the sleep. 46%, uh, roughly the same as the first stage, is stage three. Deep sleep begins. Brain begins to generate slow delta waves. Yeah, delta airlines pretty slow. Uh, stage four 
12 to 15 percent of our, our sleep cycle very deep sleep rhythmic breathing uh, limited muscle activity brain produces delta waves again and stage five is the last one uh, 20 to 25 percent rapid eye movement brain waves speed up and dreaming occurs muscles relax and heart rate increases breathing is rapid and shallow again because we're simulating being awake uh, in our dreams so there's the basic rest activity cycle which Kleitman 1969 uh, referred to and this is the 90 minute cycle found during sleep um, which is the basic rest activity cycle or BRAC but he also suggested that these ultradian rhythms continue throughout the day even when we're awake uh, rather than moving through sleep stages, we move progressively from a state of alertness into uh, physiological fatigue every 90 minutes. Uh, hence, we have kind of breaks in the mornings um, and uh, might feel tired in the afternoon, uh, things as such. Infradian rhythms uh, are those that occur in uh, greater periods than 24 hours. Uh, there's weekly rhythms. Grouping of seven days in a unit called a week is common in most areas of the world. Yes, it is. Uh, and there are obvious and sometimes less obvious differences in human behavior to conform to this weekly cycle. Although male testosterone levels are elevated at weekends and young couples report more activity at the weekends than on weekdays, the frequency of births at weekends is lower than on weekdays. It is tempting to look for underlying biological cycles that would dictate these differences. Uh, and yes, this is exactly what Halberg et al. 2002 did, reporting that seven-day rhythms of blood pressure and heart rate in humans, but the evidence for weekly infrading rhythms in humans remains uh, sketchy at best. So, weekly rhythms, yes, there's societal functions, uh, but we, you know, the more research needs to elaborate on it. Monthly rhythms, uh, the human menstrual cycle is uh, a, an example of this, uh, relatively short 23 days to as long as 36 days, uh, roughly around 28 days, um, which regulates uh, estrogen levels. There's also annual rhythms in most animals, uh, and these are related to seasons, the examples being migration of birds as a result of lower temperatures and decreased food sources in the winter. But humans, the calendar year appears to influence behavior regardless of changes in temperature. Uh, they suggest some seasonal mood variations in humans with some becoming severely depressed during the winter months, seasonal, which could be seasonal defective, affective disorder. Uh, it's also in, in associ winter is also associated with increase in heart attacks, which varies uh, seasonally and peaks in winter. Um, in fact, there is a robust, robust annual rhythm in human deaths, with most deaths occurring in January, uh, identified by Trudeau, 1997. Um, so again, this might also be due to uh, more of societal factors than anything else. So let's evaluate circadian, ultradian, and infradian rhythms. Importance of light uh, was test tested in the Antarctic um, and by Hughes. Individual differences, cycle length varies between 13 to 65 hours by Scheidler et al. Uh, research mythology, early studies did not isolate participants from artificial light. Uh, chronotherapeutics, development of circadian cycle-friendly uh, medications. Temperature mode is important, is more important than light in setting circadian rhythms. Burr et al. found this. Evaluations of ultradian and infradian rhythms, uh, 
there's individual differences in sleep stages, uh, like sleep duration. Again, Scheisler et al. Research supports that uh, for the BRAC or BRAC, um, the basic rest activity cycle of Erickson et al. Um, human mate choices varies across uh, the menstrual cycle. Penton, Voak et al. Belief in lunar rhythms. No evidence to support infrared rhythm based on phases of the moon. Uh, yes. Okay, and moving on to the last part of biopsychology, um, namely exogenous um, zeitgebers and endogenous pacemakers. So, let's talk about endogenous pacemakers. Uh, these refer to anything whose origins are within an organism, hence endogenous. Uh, and these pacemakers, because they, they keep the time. So, one of these things is the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, it's a tiny little cluster of nerve cells, which lies in the hypothalamus and plays an important role in generating body circadian rhythm and is known as the master clock. Um, so, yes, so there's control over all of the biological clocks throughout the body with neurons uh, within the SCN spontaneously synchronized with each other so that the targeted neurons and sites elsewhere in the body correctly receive time-coordinated signals. Uh, so the SCN receives information about light levels via the optic nerve, um, and the SCN also regulates the manufacture of secretion of melatonin in the pineal gland via the interconnecting neural pathway. Again, melatonin basing are uh, all training rhythms of awake and sleep. The pineal gland is when the SCN sends signals to the pineal gland, directing it to an increase of production and secretion of hormone melatonin at night and decreases it uh, as light levels increase in the morning. So again, this is based off of light. Uh, melatonin induces sleep by inhibiting brain mechanisms that pr promote wakefulness. Uh, what are exogenous Zeitgebers? Uh, Zeitgebers? Zeitgeber. Uh, well, light is one of these. Uh, receptors in the SCN are sensitive to changes in light levels during the day and use this information to synchronize the activity of the body's organs and glands. Uh, light resets the internal biological clock each day, keeping it on a 24-hour cycle. Rods and cones in the retina of the eye detect light uh, to form visual images. But there's also a third type of light-detecting cell in the retina that gauges overall brightness to help reset the internal biological cloth. And this is a protein called melanopsin. Melanopsin. Uh, throw this into your essays, which will be good. Uh, and a small number of retina cells contain melanopsin and carry signals to the SCN to set the bo daily body cycle. So again, light is the external um, time giver, hence Zeitgeber in German. Uh, social cues. So social stimuli, such as mealtimes and social activities, also have a role uh, as uh, Zeitgebers, as Ashoff et al. 1971 showed that individuals are able to compensate for the absence of Zeitgebers, such as natural light, by responding to social Zeitgebers instead. Uh, one of the earliest studies on jet lag, Klein and Wegman, uh, 1974, found that circadian rhythms of air travelers adjusted more quickly if they went outside more at their destination. This was thought to be because they were exposed to social cues and then uh, of their new time zone, which acted as a Zeitgeber. Uh, likewise, circadian rhythms of blind people were thought to be no different to sighted people, as both groups were exposed to the same social cues. Uh, so again, mealtimes is an example of this. Um, so, yeah, so we now know that both examples can be better explained in terms of light uh, exposure acting as a Zeitgeber. 
the sleep-wake cycle in most blind people is still influenced by light during the day, even though they have no visual perception. It's because connections exist between the eye and the SCN don't involve parts of the visual system and the perception of light depends. Okay, I talked a lot in detail about sight gabas. Uh, so let's evaluate these two, and then we'll be done for the day, and you guys can do whatever else you're doing, probably stressing for exams, because when you're listening to this, uh, who isn't? The role of SCN, uh, demonstrated in hamster studies, yes, Morgan, 1995. Disruption of circadian rhythms thought uh, through use of electronic media is detrimental to health. Twitu et al. found this, not Twitter, but Twitu. Uh, endogen- yeah, so this is again endogenous pacemakers. Exogenous psych gibbers, support of role of the mental nopsin. Again, blind subjects uh, was the, the uh, kind of whatever, you know, you know, you know the word that I'm looking for here, the, the uh, example of this. Light exposures may avoid jet lag. Again, we talked about this already, and role of artificial light, uh, we already talked about this too. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, that tops us off for biopsychology, uh, and good luck for your exams, and I will see you guys next time.